Welcome to Our Seven Neighbors, a new seven-episode podcast brought to you by the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary. This podcast will bring you a story, an interview, and a conversation that will hopefully teach us, inspire us, and activate us to be better neighbors, no matter your religious or non-religious background. With hate crime violence hitting a 16-year high and anti-Muslim fear and ignorance on the rise, the IRI went in search of stories and people. We asked a lot of questions and heard a lot of stories about being Muslim in America, about the importance of intersectionality, about being an immigrant in the age of Trump, about the ways media shifts the narratives, about the power of acting on the local level and becoming better allies. Today's guests include Leila Ali, a proud Egyptian Muslim immigrant based in Raleigh, North Carolina, Catherine Orsborn, a white Christian woman doing powerful interfaith allyship work in D.C., and noted peacemaker and Muslim scholar Najiba Saeed. My name is Kim Schultz, and I am your host. And this is our first episode, entitled Road Trips and Allyship. Last spring, in the middle of Ramadan, which, for those of you who don't know, Ramadan is the ninth month of the Islamic calendar, observed by Muslims worldwide as a month of fasting, prayer, and reflection, as well as community. We joined forces with an organization in D.C. called Shoulder to Shoulder and went on a Ramadan road trip. Oh, you heard me right. A Ramadan road trip. We visited five Ramadan iftar dinners in Raleigh, Louisville, Nashville, Atlanta, and Washington, D.C., with a quick stop in Clarkston, Georgia. More on that in our next episode. And we met with hundreds of folks asking them questions about Ramadan, hearing stories about being Muslim in America, and asking and engaging on the idea of being a better ally. That road trip inspired this podcast. That's not the only inspiration for this podcast, but it's where we began. So today, we start where we started, with a story. Leila Ali is a founder and policy programming lead of Raleigh-based Muslim Women Four, an organization of diverse women leaders whose vision it is to foster vibrant Muslim societies that work to create lasting social change. It's a community of Muslim women working for color-led social justice, and Leila herself is a force to be reckoned with. I had a great conversation with her just before their interfaith Ramadan dinner. Here's Leila. I was at Tarawih prayer the other day in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, which is where I grew up. I mean, that's the mosque I grew up in from the first grade I was there. And I remember when we were younger, there weren't security cameras around our mosque. There weren't police there. Like, we'd never see that stuff. We would just be there and feel kind of safe in a way that we're playing around. We, we These horrors and these feelings of someone coming in and intruding and, and really just the violence that we see in, in places of worship weren't on our minds as young people, as young children playing. And recently when I went to Tarawih prayer, I saw there was a there's a TV on the women's side where you could see every, like cameras, you could see every part of the mosque. And I was like, whoa, that's being Muslim in America today where you're, you're constantly filled surveilled, but at the same time, like, you're also censoring what's happening in your space. At a, at a moment where you're supposed to be reflecting in worship and prayer, 
where you're really not supposed to be thinking about your surroundings, where you're not supposed to be, you know, thinking about your safety. But at a time where you're, you're supposed to be focused on prayer, a time where you're supposed to be reflecting on how can I be close to my creator, especially in a time during Ramadan where that really is encouraged and where it's a time where people take that opportunity to do just that, right? To become closer to creator, to intensify our worship. But then having to, at the same time, while you're praying and trying to focus, is also looking to make sure that, like, you know, everyone wants to pray and, and you're taking that obligation to make sure that my community is safe and then coming back. And that just creates a an environment of and a climate of just fear and anxiety where people are constantly asking, you know, do I go to the mosque? Do I pray tarawih? Do I send my kids to Islamic school or do I not? Am I better off just staying at home? But then you're also not really safe at home, as we've seen here in this community where Muslims are killed in their homes. So I think being Muslim in America today is feeling anxiety, feeling fear, but at the same time, not trying to negotiate your respect. When we see these things at play at the institutional level, it really shows that these particular issues really need to be addressed at their root, right? When you're doing this, continue doing this work, continue doing these movements. When you're talking about anti-Muslim bigotry, you, you have to talk about you know, how black folks are being treated in this country, how immigrants are being treated in this country. It needs to be very intersectional. It needs to be directed at the roots. And I think this month, this year is particularly important because we started off the year with, with a lot, a lot of violence, a lot of um, trauma that we've been revisiting throughout the year, not just in Muslim spaces, but also in synagogues and you know Jewish spaces and also in churches, black, especially black churches, and seeing all these great and historical places, places of worship being burned and being violated like that, where people are, are just really afraid to worship. So I think this comes at a beautiful time to come together as a community and bring folks together. We're asking you to show up in so many different ways. We're asking you to show up to rally for our immigrant brothers and sisters who are being deported and detained. We're asking you to come together to uplift Muslim women and women of color and their work. We're, we're asking you to acknowledge that, right? We're asking you to come together and fight for your, you know, your Muslim you know, brothers and sisters who are facing hate crimes, who are facing you know, uh, bullying in schools. And yeah. I think that in terms of all of this work, it's a duty for everyone, white mm. folks, black folks, immigrant folks, to really do this work and come together collectively. Catherine Orsborn is the director of Shoulder to Shoulder. I interviewed a very pregnant Catherine at the end of our road trip in her office in the shadow of the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. But first, here's Catherine and I in the van traveling down some interstate or another during the Ramadan road trip last May. Take a listen. So Catherine, here we are on our way from Nashville to Atlanta on a Ramadan road trip. Here we are in the car. How's it going for you so far? It's been great. It has been kind of a whirlwind trip because we've been in a different city every night and have been, you know, with different communities in each place. And it's been very different in every place, which has been really cool to see. What are some of the things that you have taken away right now, having done three of the four iftars on the road? Yeah, I mean, I'm encouraged and in some some ways surprised maybe I shouldn't be surprised by um, the very different feels of each of them in each city so in Raleigh for instance we were at an iftar that was organized by three young Muslim women held in the house that is dedicated to the memory of the three young people 
murdered in Chapel Hill. And that iftar had this kind of grassrootsy feel. We were at picnic tables in a backyard, um, having these intimate conversations. It was much smaller. And then the next night we go to Louisville where we're with 600 people in a church hearing from the mayor and the attorney general of the state about their support for diversity and inclusion in their community. And so to me, one of the things that really stands out between all three of them is just the importance of fostering all different aspects and levels of interfaith engagement and that we need to have spaces for everyone to kind of find find their way of entering this work and, and gathering together and that it can look really different in different places. There's no sort of form for it. What would you say to somebody who uh, is not lucky enough to be on this Ramadan road trip to us and experiencing what we're experiencing? <laughs> or maybe who's never been to an iftar themselves? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say, like, dive in where you can because it's such a neat experience. I think that sometimes people feel they need to have a lot of stuff figured out before they enter a space that's a little bit unknown to them. And so, you know, just being able to to kind of show up and, and try to find a place to show up and experience something that might be new to you can be a really valuable learning experience and really an experience of transformation for lots of people. Great. Also, that the food is great. And here she is back in her office. We are with Catherine Orsborn of Shoulder to Shoulder, sitting here in the offices, which are in the shadow of the Supreme Court building, which is so exciting. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Kim. <laughs> Thanks for coming. So glad to be here. We just finished yeah. our, literally just finished the Ramadan road trip. Yes. With Shoulder to Shoulder, and I should say epic Ramadan road trip. <laughs> <laughs> I think it qualifies as epic. <laughs> Do you want to talk a little bit about where we went on this epic Ramadan road trip? Sure. So we started in Raleigh, North Carolina last Monday, went to Louisville, Kentucky the next day, then to Nashville, Tennessee, to Atlanta, Georgia. And then last night had our final iftar as part of this piece of our Ramadan work here in DC, actually, um, which is our annual iftar we hold in DC. So yeah. I come from an evangelical background, a fairly conservative evangelical background I'm from Kentucky. So I have a affinity for the Southern cities we we're visiting. You know, I had really transformative, personal, relational sort of encounters with Muslims um, when I was living in Egypt that really shifted my own perspective and kind of called me into this work in certain ways. So tell us why uh, Shoulder to Shoulder went on this Ramadan road trip and maybe a little yeah. bit about Shoulder to Shoulder. Sure. Yeah. So I can start with some background on Shoulder to Shoulder. The organization was founded in 2010 as a response to rising anti-Muslim rhetoric at that time. So you'll remember the sort of controversy around the so-called Ground Zero Mosque in New York. There was also a mosque outside of Nashville, Tennessee in Murfreesboro that had been vandalized and targeted by arson attacks a number of times. And then there was a pastor in Florida threatening to burn the Quran in a very public way. And all of this was happening in sort of the same time period. There was lots and lots of news coverage of all this. People were talking about Islam and Muslims in a way that was, you know, overall very negative and really to a point that ha we hadn't really seen before. Even right after 9-11, this wasn't the type of rhetoric we were seeing. And so in light of this, a number of different Jewish and Christian leaders 
who had existing relationships with leadership from the Muslim community because they'd worked together so much in the past on various social issues in the U.S. They'd worked together on problems of hunger, on peace and conflict issues, and all sorts of things. They had these strong working relationships. And so the Jewish and Christian leaders came to some of the Muslim leaders and said, you know, we're speaking out from our platforms. We're saying this is not okay, but we feel like we need to be doing something more. It's probably the first time that particular grouping of leaders were speaking together in one voice on any issue, really, because these are groups that sometimes work, some of them work together on a regular basis. But out of this summit and press conference, they were very aware that the high-level clergy speaking out from their institutional platforms about this was important. It was a really important step. It was really important symbolically, but it wasn't going to be the sort of silver bullet to solve this issue. And they needed to form an ongoing campaign to work on this issue. And one of the main points of framing for them at that time, and that continues to be part of our framing, is that this is an issue that affects us all. So when one faith community is under attack, it's something that all faith communities need to care about in the United States, both because our religious traditions and teachings speak against this type of of violent rhetoric and, and hate, but also because we all equally rely on a commitment to religious freedom. And that commitment to religious freedom has to apply equally to everyone or it's not real. Part of it, too, is, and we hear this word bounced around a lot, is allyship, being mm-hmm. an ally. Yeah. And shoulder to shoulder is is an ally to the Muslim community. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's definitely an ally organization in a sense that the membership of shoulder to shoulder is primarily non-Muslim groups who are looking for the ways they can be the best types of support to our Muslim neighbors. And so one of your uh, initiatives is this Love Over Hate campaign, um, which the Ramadan Road Trip is a part of. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So for the past few years, we've been doing this Love Over Hate campaign, United States of Love Over Hate, um, a Ramadan supper series is what Mm -hmm. we've been calling it. And um, really, this, this campaign has just been about identifying all of these opportunities for people who are not of the Muslim faith to attend iftars during Ramadan as an opportunity to simply connect with their Muslim neighbors. But as we were kind of prepping this year's Ramadan campaign, we were like, how do we tell better stories from these events? Because the story that these events are happening is a beautiful story in and of itself, but it doesn't really give you the the texture or sort of the insight into what's actually happening and, and the types of like personal transformation that are happening at these events. And so, yeah, in some ways I feel like it's helpful to think of these events as kind of a lens into the broader work that's happening in these places. So the event itself is an important thing that's happening, but it's not the thing that defines what the work looks like in those cities. It's kind of a, a coming together of of the people and the and the ongoing work that's happening in different corners of that place and the event is an opportunity to to be with each other in person and and so sometimes it's a catalyst for you know new work together or new relationships that people can build off of or just new opportunities for personal transformation so somebody for instance who had never been to an iftar before who showed up at one 
it can be an opportunity for them to consider how the encounters and how that experience maybe shifts the way they think about this issue and maybe how they talk about it within their own community. I think in developing those relationships and really intentionally listening to people within the Muslim community, you start to see more naturally what those steps of being a good ally can look like. So it's a lot easier to show up for somebody if you have a relationship with them. And so I think that's a really important piece of that, that the relationship building is important in and of itself. I do believe that relationships are really important in and of themselves. But also when we're thinking about solving the issue of Islamophobia, the relationships aren't necessarily the thing that solves that. It's what happens out of those relationships. It's hard work. So I'm wondering what, what gives you hope in this in these trying times yeah. and um, maybe personally? I have a couple of Muslim friends who have kids around the same age as as my son. And, you know, so little like one and two year olds and just thinking about the future for these kids and, and what kind of country we're wanting to create. And that's that's something we all have to be involved in. It can't be on the Muslim community to fight Islamophobia. It has to be on everyone. I think it's really important to, to be thinking about like the, the work we all need to be doing in our own houses. After listening to this story and interview, Rabbi Dr. Rachel Mikva, professor at Chicago Theological Seminary, had a chance to speak with Muslim scholar and noted peacemaker Najiba Saeed in our studio at CTS in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago. Hi, I'm Rachel Mikva, and I'm delighted to have Najiba Saeed here as my conversation partner on Our Seven Neighbors. Welcome, Najiba. Hi, nice to be here with you today, Rachel. We're going to talk today a little bit about allyship and intersectionality, which were two themes that came up in the stories, but I thought it would be first good for listeners to get a more personal perspective, both the interview with Leila Ali, the founder of Muslim Women 4, and with Catherine Orsborn, the campaign director of Shoulder to Shoulder, those were recorded during the month of Ramadan last year. And this year, it begins toward the end of April. So I wanted to ask you, Najiba, what's central for you in the experience of Ramadan? So central to me in the experience of Ramadan, I always explain this to my students, is a connection, particularly in the act of fasting with the Jewish and the Muslim community. Since the Quran tells us that fasting has been ordained on the community of Muslims as it was on those before us. So the ritual of fasting itself, just the the actual notion of abstaining from food connects us in other ways to other traditions. So in some ways, it is a very uniquely Muslim ritual in the designated month of Ramadan for the designated period of days. And at the same time, we feel as Muslims, this is not a very new or disconnected religious ritual. So, you know, at the very basic level, it is in some ways a ritual that directly connects us through our scripture, our practice, and our traditions to other communities of faith. Since the quick buildup of the Islamophobia industry and the pouring of lots of private money into making people afraid of Muslims, that there has been a palpable shift beyond the state, deeper into communities that is a little newer, right? That is about 10 years old as the money's been pouring into the Islamophobia industry. I think it's important to know these histories 
of Islamophobia before even the term Islamophobia was coined. Right. Right. So we, that's also a new term. That's something to keep in mind, too. It's not it hasn't been around for 50, 60 years. So in some ways, a phenomena that might have occurred before didn't necessarily have that name. So it is fascinating to think about the consciousness around the conversation of discrimination based on religious origin is not being analyzed in a different way because such words exist. And the racialization of religion is not a new thing. It's certainly not a new thing. And another factor that we have to keep in mind is that um, we can also document when there are major election cycles, a spike in hate crimes in particular, or a spike in Islamophobic language and public officials on a regular basis. In many ways, we see that the political tool, there's an efficacy to utilizing Muslims or those to whom we attach Islam to as tools for galvanizing a political base. It always depends who's going to be the most convenient and the most effective other to scapegoat. So let's talk a little bit about allyship. You've surely been in conversations about needing accomplices more than allies and people trying to problematize the language of allyship. And I don't know that we have to give up on the term, but I do love the critique. And I wanted to know what what are some of the useful aspects of the critique of allyship that we think can make for better allies. Absolutely. I teach a course called Interfaith Dialogue, and I added the word leadership to it because I felt that one of the things my students needed exposure to was how do we engage in conversations around religious diversity and pluralism, not just from an abstract level, but in the embodied spaces that we occupy. Right. Allies can be really heavy on talk. It can become an identity, right? Solidarity or leadership would emphasize the action and embodiment, right? Right. And I think one of the pieces I wrote a couple of, about a year and a half ago for Sojourners was on Islamophobia. And the piece basically said, because I have this consistent sort of question that progressive Christians will ask me, well, what can I do to help you with Islamophobia? And my answer is, well, you can work in your own community and (laughs) battle Islamophobia on the fronts that I either don't have an entree to or I would not be an effective interlocutor with. So the idea of allyship, it's not predicated. I was speaking to a Catholic university in Vermont a couple of years ago, you know, and, and, and the assumption was, well, let's be allies when there's a Muslim in the room. And I actually pointed <laughs> out that the most important time to be an ally is when there is. When there's no Muslim in the room. Right. I also find that allies sometimes think about it too much from a savior perspective, but they're standing up for or helping someone who's been disadvantaged. Whereas the language of solidarity would recognize that we're all impacted and that we also do this for our own well-being. And it matters in our communities how we talk about Muslims or others for the health of our community, for the world we want to create for our children, which is something that Catherine referenced. Yeah, I think the notion of interdependence and the tying of a collective notion of dignity so that my dignity, from the Muslim perspective, karama, every human being is endowed with a form of dignity. And that dignity is not fully manifested in many ways when someone else's dignity is violated. And I think that's important because 
the spiritual practice of allyship. And I wanted to spiritualize some of this conversation because I think what happens is it becomes very transactional that I'm here engaged in a fight or a struggle for the sake of another community. And I want to often kind of (laughs) bring into this conversation, one of them is the ethics of, of developing that vision has to include the other community. And in particular, that community should be the one forming that vision. And so when we come into a space and, you know, we all are allies of others in some way. I'm an ally. Sometimes I I, I take the position of needing solidarity and then I also need to express it. So I think that's also important is that this is very contextual. It moves and changes and you're not always going to be the ally. You also have to be in a position of being able to receive support when you need it. But I wanted to point out here, I think it comes from, um, hopefully from a spiritual place of humility as well. So I think this word ally and the intention, part of the humility is to understand whether you are the right person or not to actually engage in the work. So I often do work where you don't see my fingerprints on the project or my face because I, if I intervene publicly, would actually not be the most effective person. (laughs) So the humility is not just the spiritual practice of saying, I'm here and I'm here to support you in the work that you need. So you, you know, ask what is, what's the best support? What's the best way to help? Negotiate whether that help should be public or privately documented? I mean, these are all questions that I think about when I work with other communities or communities and individuals come and show up for us. And a beautiful way of thinking about part of the critique of allyship that I think you're trying to get at, which is it sometimes comes off as performative. It's really something to think about and whether in our inner faith, inner religious conversations, are we getting to what I talk about in my work, the role of a scholar is actually naming the wounds. We talk about healing, we talk about a Kungian notion of peace between religions, but are we, you know, are we staying at the level of similarities and not just commonalities, but are we getting to the places where we, you know, have utilized either our tradition or been the targets of others there's a Hasidic story that where one guy says, I love you to the, the other guy. I just, I, I just feel so deeply connected to you. And he says, do you know what pains me? And the other first guy says, well, no. And he says, well, how can you know me? And how can you love me if you don't know what pains me? So it's that idea of getting, we need to be able to listen and make space and build the trust that allows us to show the, our wounds. Yeah. I want to share a poem that Aurora Levins Morales wrote. It's just, I want to share just a couple lines of it because I think it in a very simple way lifts up the goal, the goal of, of our work together. And she writes, she's talking about the ancient Israelites liberation from slavery at the shore of the sea. And so she writes, we cannot cross until we carry each other, all of us refugees, all of us prophets, This time, it's all of us or none. And so the work continues. Thank you for joining our conversation and meeting some of your neighbors. This podcast is community-driven, and you 
are our community. So we want your thoughts, your feedback, your questions. We have set up a voicemail for this very purpose. Call us and leave us a message. We may play your comment or answer your questions on future episodes. Let's be in conversation together. The number to call is 773-896-2529. That's 773-896-2529. Or you can leave us a note on our Facebook page at the Interreligious Institute. We look forward to hearing from you. Join us next time for an episode focusing on the power and possibility of working for justice on the local level. We're calling that episode Local Power. Join us for another story, interview, and conversation with your seven neighbors. Join us online at OurSevenNeighbors.com. And to learn more about our guests, Leila Ali, Catherine Orsborne, and Najiba Saeed, and the organizations they work with and the work that they do, we have provided links in the show notes and on our website. Please also take a moment to see what Chicago Theological Seminary is all about at ctschicago.edu. Thanks for listening to Our Seven Neighbors. Talk soon. Mm -hmm.